Turn to Romans chapter 5 this morning as we come not to the sinking sand but to Christ the solid rock of our justification and all the benefits that come from it. Romans 5 to read the first 11 verses and to give our attention particularly to verses 1 through 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5 at verse 1, being thankful that we have the God-breathed scriptures recorded and preserved for us, translated into our own language. Romans 5 at verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, We shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I'd invite you, if you're able, to keep your Bibles or electronic devices open to follow the text of Romans 5, 1 through through 5, as we go through that this morning. Let's bow in prayer before our God. Gracious God in heaven, we bow before your word. We ask once more during our short stay upon this earth, that the God of heaven would visit our souls upon the earth through his precious word. We thank you you have not left us to our own thoughts, but you have spoken your news to us and the victory achieved in Christ, our solid rock. And we pray that you administer it to us through the ministration of your Holy Spirit. In his name we pray, amen. Well, Congregation of Christ, maybe you have been told about the guy I've been told about who came into a great amount of money. Maybe he invented something or his business flourished and became very, very wealthy. He wasn't before, but he became wealthy. And someone says of him, you know, it hasn't changed him at all. He still drives the, the same old pickup truck. He still wears the, the same jeans. If you meet him in the restaurant, he'll still talk to you. He's humble. It hasn't, all that money, it hasn't changed him at all. And that's said as a kind of compliment, isn't it? That that he hasn't become arrogant or self-indulgent, but that he's remained humble. But when the Bible says to us that our riches have not changed us at all, or when the Bible sometimes suggests that, that we're not living up to our privilege, It's not said as a compliment. 
It's not right for the children of God who've been lavished such love and mercies to live just the same way as before. And Romans 5, you see, is God the Holy Spirit through the mind and heart and pen of the Apostle Paul. It's God the Holy Spirit saying to us, do you see how rich you are? It's, it's the accountant coming in and saying, let me open the books. Look at this. Look at this. Look at how rich you are. And so you have to understand that as you come to Romans 5 with that word, therefore, therefore, the apostle having established the fact that we are sinful and unworthy of God, but then declaring the gospel in chapter 3 and 4 that in Christ our sins are removed and we stand righteous before God with the word therefore. Now he, he breaks forth all the fruit of justification, all the wealth that accrues to us and draws our attention to it. Extraordinary benefits, the precious privileges that are ours in Christ. It's like child striking the pinata and all the candy gushes forth. Well, actually, in my adulthood, pinatas I've seen seem to be much more equitable. Children beat and beat, and then they get a couple pieces of candy, and then they beat and beat, and someone else gets a couple more. But the pinata I remember, the first one I saw, I believe, was, was different. It was beat upon it by one child, another child beats upon it, another child beats upon it. Nothing happens, but finally... Someone strikes that fatal blow to the belly of the beast and the whole candy store discharges. And children with squeals of delight run, unaware that the blindfolded child might still strike them in the head. But but the riches are there. And you see the Apostle Paul says some three times over in Romans 5, 1 through 11, we rejoice, or it could be translated, we boast, we glory. We glory in these riches. And the one I want to draw your attention to this morning, the benefit that I'd like to focus upon is found at the end of verse 2, that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I'd like to ask four questions about that. First of all, simply, what is that? What is the hope of the glory of God? Well, we could say and remind ourselves, first of all, that hope in the Bible is never a mere wish. It has nothing to do with the unbelieving neighbor who responds to us by saying, well, I sure hope I'm going to go to heaven. That's never what the hope is in the Bible. In the Bible, hope is certainty. It's our certain future that we don't yet have, but it's there and we will attain to it. And so it's faith looking forward to what is ours. It's certain. Now, what is the hope? What is the certainty of the glory of God? Well, there's perhaps no better summary than what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3 when he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Apostle Paul is going to tell more about the glory in Romans 8, that the sons of God will be revealed. But our text here and Romans 8 are not understandable apart from Romans 3, verse 23, where we are told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? 
We sin and fall short, not simply of some law code, but we in sinning have fallen short of the glory of the eternal God. Because you see, we were made in the very likeness of God to reflect his glory. And it was the light of the heart God gave us to bask in the radiance, to know the fellowship of the glorious one. And we, in that tragic and treacherous fall into sin, we abandon God's glory for something lesser. Right? That's what the apostle says in Romans chapter 1, doesn't he? That, that we went elsewhere. He says in Romans 1, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Romans 1.23, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image. Romans 1.25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Sin is the worship of an alternative of a fake glory. And so the world's full of counterfeit glories. And people chase them. Elements of creation are sinful desires. And for for one person, the glory is money, another the glory of possessions, another the glory of fame, another the glory of of self-expression. For another, it's it's the glory of seeing new things in the world, travel, exploring, or the, the glory of an adrenaline rush, doing something daring. For one, it's the glory of artistic skill, mastering some instrument or some paintbrush. For some, it's the glory of knowledge glory of being known as a great scholar or, or the glory of whatever it might be, but all of it less than the glory of God. So the apostle says in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools. Professing to be wise. Adam and Eve deciding that Satan's is so wise, we can be gods, they became fools and their children after them. And though God has the right to give all men up to their idolatries and bring down his wrath upon them, the apostle has declared the news that God has come into a world of fools who have exchanged his glory for lesser things, and he has revealed his glory in his own beloved son. And in doing that, he restores his people to glory. The hope of glory, you see, is that we will see God and be made like him. It's that we'll be transformed in the very image of God's beloved son, to which we were predestined. And it's that God in all of his radiance will be manifest and vindicated in this world. John Murray writes in his commentary, The revelation of the glory of God at the consummation has also another interest for believers as the goal of hope, They are interested in the manifestation of the glory of God for its own sake. The glory of God is their chief end, and they long and hasten unto that day when, with undimmed vision, they will behold the glory of God in its fullest exhibition and vindication. Glory of God is our life. We are made for this. And so the church has sung about it throughout the ages. Psalm 27, one thing I have desired of the Lord That will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord. Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of 
my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 16, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The hope of glory. And for the believer, it's, it's not merely distant, but it has come into our lives in Christ. We have tasted of it. And there are some things in life that if you've seen them, if you've experienced them, you can never be the same again. And that's the way it is with the glory of God. Once you have seen that glory in Jesus Christ, you know that nothing else will satisfy. It's our duty to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So that's what it is. It's the fullness of salvation, standing in the glorious, radiant, smiling face of our fully manifested God. But how did we get it? Question number two, how did we get this hope of glory? Well, the answer is Romans 5, 1 and 2, that God in Christ secured it for us. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This glory of God is not our natural birthright. It's something that we forfeited. We lost all claim upon, and we, uh, by nature, are now not objects destined for glory, but by sin, we are objects destined for condemnation, for everlasting shame. The great problem we have in this world, according to the Bible, is not a lack of self-esteem. It's it's not a lack of self-fulfillment or self-expression. It's not a lousy job or a low economic status. Our great trouble in the world is that we who are made for God's glory abandoned God's glory and turned from him and came under his condemnation. And God's wrath and judgment were accumulating against us. But God sent his glorious son, the Lord of glory in human flesh, to be the substitute of his people and to bear their everlasting shame. Christ at the cross, he takes the cup, not of glory, but the cup of shame, and he drinks it down to its bitter dregs. He is stripped naked, isn't he? He's beaten, he's spit on, he's cursed. Heaven turns away its face and the earth goes dark. Christ is cut off from the glory of God. But the apostle says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What the apostle has been laboring to show in the previous chapters is that the righteousness God demands is the righteousness that he in Christ gives to us. He credits to our account and it's received by faith only and not by our works. Justification is that pronouncement, that declaration of God the judge, that we are innocent, that we are righteous before his bar of justice, that though our hearts are still polluted, so far as his law is concerned, we stand sinless and therefore accepted by God in Christ. So we have peace with God. Not first of all, we feel peace, but we have peace, objective peace, that where there was hostility and enmity of God towards us, it's been replaced now with peace. 
Matthew Henry the Puritan writes, justification takes away the guilt and so makes for peace. This is more, there is more in this peace than barely the end of hostility. There is friendship and loving kindness. For God is either the worst enemy or the best friend. God is either your worst enemy or your best friend. Peace with God. The vain philosophies of the world will not find it. Culture absorbed with self, self expression, self identity. These are empty roads. The peace with God is not something a counselor can give you or a pastor can give you or your best friend can give you. It can't be purchased for you, but by Christ, who is the great peacemaker, who stepped in the midst of that hostility and has borne our guilt and has presented us to God as justified. We have access, verse 2, by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access. We've been introduced into it. Matthew Henry points out that the Apostle Paul, who writes here, was introduced into this grace by Christ. It was by Barnabas that he was introduced into the company of the apostles. It was by the hand of someone he was led to Damascus in his blindness. But by Christ alone was he introduced into the presence of God, that he stands in this grace. It's an amazing thing he says that we stand in, isn't it? There's a terrifying picture in in Revelation chapter 6 where kings and wealthy and slaves and all men are calling upon rocks to crush the life out of them because they say, save us from the wrath for the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. And who can stand, they cry out, who can stand? But then in Revelation chapter 6, or rather chapter 7, John then writes about this great multitude of every tribe, nation, and tongue clothed in white robes, and it said that they're standing before the throne. In our sin, none could stand, but robed in Christ's righteousness, a new relationship, a new status, and you stand there. So, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what kind of week you've had, right? You might say, I, I did lousy, I, I fell into sin, or, or I feel very confused about what God is doing, or I may have all these thoughts, but the, the Bible says this is the objective reality. If you're in Christ, you stand today in grace. It doesn't waver. Your justification doesn't rise and fall. You've been pronounced innocent before God, accepted and adopted as his children, and that's a status, a privilege you can't lose. So we have the hope of the glory, seeing the radiant, smiling face of our God. And we stand solid in that hope with free access because of this glorious gospel. And as we no longer anticipate the outpouring of God's divine wrath, but we look for the unveiling of God's divine glory, our task as a church is to exult in this, to glory in it, And to proclaim it to the world. We should have hearts of sympathy for so many wandering around in darkness and and being contented by the fake glories of this world. Image bearers who were created for God's glory. 
and have turned from the radiance of the eternal God to seek satisfaction in self. What a desperate condition. We must proclaim to the world, to the world the good news, that in Christ Jesus alone there is peace with God. What is it? It's the fullness of salvation. How do we get it? By justification through Christ our Lord. Number three, how do we grow in it? How do we grow in this hope? Verses three and four, the apostle writes, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. We glory in tribulations. It's a shocking statement, isn't it? <clears throat> Sometimes we pity in tribulations. Pity ourselves. But the apostle is saying we can glory, we can rejoice in our afflictions. Because we know that in them and through them, God is doing a productive work. The church of God faces tribulation upon the earth, afflictions and oppression and pressures. We know that many brothers and sisters are persecuted in lots of ways around the world, and we ourselves, we should understand the hostility of the world towards the believer because they they hate Christ, they, they hate Christ's people. And so you will face tension in the workplace when you when you refuse to compromise with the world. And you will find neighbors who ignore you or scorn you because they don't like what you stand for. And you may well find that the gospel divides in the midst of your family, somebody who's not living for the Lord, and now it brings you into a place of, of tension with them. These are, these, are a trip, these are afflictions and tribulations. And yet as painful and difficult as these are, the apostle says that we glory in tribulations. Because tribulation produces perseverance. Enduring hardship for Christ Jesus hardens us in the hope that we have. We become battle-tested, don't we? We're like steel put through the fire that becomes harder. We're like a man who thought nothing of the life preserver on the boat till he fell overboard. It was thrown to him, and in the midst of the waves, he clung to it. And now it means everything to him. And it's through our afflictions the Lord works this endurance, this clinging to Christ Jesus. And not only that, but he says perseverance produces character, proven character. As we're brought through the fires, we discover that God is working in us a Christ-likeness. And we discover that the faith he's given to us stands the test. And it comes through the fire approved of God. It strengthens our hope all the more that God is doing something in us and he's bringing us somewhere. So we're to believe that the afflictions of this life are not threatening our hope, but they're increasing our confidence in it. Sometimes we react to afflictions as if those things threaten us. 
as if those might rob from us our future. And the apostle says it's the opposite. That in the midst of those pressures, God is actually forming you into one who is ready to see the face of God, to be totally conformed to his likeness at his coming, and to be fit to enjoy God in all of his splendor forever. And so we can think of that. When the difficult times come at work, or in the home, or in trying to find the right job, or even for our single adults in terms of dating. I remember years ago, a young man saying to me, he said, there's lots of attractive girls I could ask out. I don't know if he was boasting, but he was a well-built young man. Maybe there were lots of attractive girls, but I don't because they don't believe. And he was bumping up against this reality that following Jesus is costing me something. So it does. But more than what it costs, it repays you as you come to prize the Lord Jesus and his glory. And so we should be about the business of reminding each other of this that we may glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And so there's this full circle, it starts with hope. And in that hope, we go through the tribulation, and we come out of the tribulation, strengthen that hope that it's real. God's bringing me to his glory. And finally, we're assured of it. And that's the last question. Not just what is it, how did we get it, how do we grow in it, but finally this morning, how are we assured of this hope? Verse 5, now hope does not disappoint Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There are many in this world who are coming to find out that their hopes disappoint. That it was was a fantasy. It was an illusion. We're greatly grieved, aren't we, to watch the lies being propagated in, in many classrooms around the country. And from so many different media outlets that are inviting children to do such harm to themselves with the promise that if they can just discover who they really are, then they'll find true life and happiness. And instead, so many of them taking their own lives in desperation because what was promised was not delivered. But Christ says to us this morning that the hope I proclaim to you does not disappoint. You will not be ashamed or feel a fool for having spent your whole life anticipating it and praying towards it. You will not be left hopeless on that last day when Christ comes. To discover it was all just an illusion, all just a fantasy, and you stand naked and ashamed before him? No, this hope will not disappoint. And you can know that because the apostle says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit given to us. 
This hope of glory is rooted in God's redeeming love. It is not rooted in your beauty. In fact, the apostle will go on to say in that marvelous statement, Romans 5, 6 through 8, that when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unlovely and unattractive, when we were repulsive to God in our sin, he sent his son out of his love. And his son came in love to redeem and to rescue. And so we ascribe all the blessings of our lives from first to last to the love of God in Christ. And the apostle says this love is poured out in our hearts by the spirit given to us. What an amazing thing, isn't it? That God's love is not rationed out to us drip by drip, as someone said, but it's, it's lavished upon us. Picture our rainstorm on a parched desert landscape. The love of God is spread over us, the text says. It's poured into our hearts abundantly. You read the biographies of Christians, and there's amazing stories, isn't there, of the love of God shed abroad in their hearts, sometimes in the most desperate moments. I I read to you recently John G. Payton, a missionary to the New Hebrides, who, who spent that night up in a tree while the natives looked for him to kill him. And he writes in his autobiography, The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my mind. Another missionary, the royal officer, Alan Gardner, Stuck on an island with others and their endeavors, and their supply of food ran out, and they slowly but surely all starved to death. But when those came to resupply, found the dead bodies, they recovered his journal and the letters he had written for his family, in which he wrote out scriptures and testified to his faith. And they discovered that he had one final entry in his journal, scratched out by a feeble dying hand, which read, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. The words of a man whose body dies alone, utterly depleted, In the eyes of the world might have looked like he had no hope at all. But the spirit testifying to the love of God in his heart filled his life with a sense of the love of God for him. You see what it is? That God the Holy Spirit should testify to us in glorious ways. Not just in our last dying moment on a mission field, but right now in our lives, and he should testify to us that we are the beloved of God. And so that glory to come, and we will see the smiling face of the splendid majesty of the eternal God has already come into our lives now, the apostle says, by the Holy Spirit, 
whose great delight it is, is to testify to us by the word and to assure us as God's children that we are loved. And that we will see the face of our God. And so we can say with Psalm 63, your loving kindness is better than life. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Are you living up to your privileges in Christ? Are you still driving the same old truck, wearing the same old clothes, and talking the same old way? Or have you joined the Apostle Paul to say, we rejoice in the hope of glory, the glory of God. We exalt in this, we boast in this, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Have you realized in Christ how rich you are? This Holy Spirit taken you by the hand and said, let me open up the book. Look at how wealthy you are. You can even glory in tribulations. Because the Lord your God in Christ has worked for you at the cross and is working for you now in the pressures of this life. Glory that's greater than anything you can imagine. That you will partake of God's glory. And you will be satisfied. Come to the feast this morning. Taste and see the goodness and the grace and the glory of God. And glory in that. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches purchased for us in Christ and declared to us by the Spirit. And we pray, Lord, that we would see how rich we are. In Jesus' name, amen.